1: Hello, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation about science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and on this week's show. Uber has had a tumultuous month with the departure of several senior executives, including most recently the company's president, Jeff Jones. So we take a peek under the bonnet of the ride-sharing company and assess the situation.
2: Having problems like this, while they might not permanently hamper the business, first of all, is a distraction and second of all, cast doubt on whether Uber will be able to live up to the high expectations implied in the valuation.
1: Also on this week's show, some mini-tornadoes in the Atacama Desert in Chile unearth new insights into our understanding of geology.
3: It is possible that this insight into the formation of dunes with these large crystals could help us to better understand a lot of rock specimens that we see that were formed millions of years ago and have had no explanation for.
1: But first, the process of scientific publishing is as hallowed as it is old. The first scientific journal, Philosophical Transactions, started publishing back in 1665. But despite centuries of accumulated experience, the system is onerous, and some argue it's slowing down the progress of science. In recent years, there have been rumblings of change, and a leader article in this week's issue calls for some robust reforms. Here to tell us more is our science correspondent, Anano Bhattacharya. Hello, Anano. Hi, again. So first, let me ask, why is the process of scientific publication so slow? journal publication system was set up 300
0: years ago in order to communicate the findings of science. The problem is that 300 years later we have the internet and yet the process by which scientists communicate is still shackled to journal publication. So often results are not made available until uh, the work is published and that
1: can take many months or years. But all researchers are taking their papers and putting it online, and there's even online journals that have cropped up, like the Public Library of Science Plus. So, why don't you think that the existing mechanisms are sufficient? Even in those
0: cases, a paper will often have to go through months of sitting around in an editor's office or be sent out for peer review. If a scientist then gets rejected, they will try their luck with another slightly less prestigious journal, and this process can uh, mean that uh, the results of research are locked away for several years. And then, uh, whilst you rightly point out some journals are open access, uh, many of them are not, and so the findings are still behind paywalls. Worse, given that the whole incentive structure of career progression in science, particularly so in medical research, depends upon journal publication, people tend to hoard their data for months, and sometimes uh, it will not be released even after
1: publication. So what you're calling for is basically anarchy and fake news to come to scientific publishing?
0: No. First of all, we would like medical researchers to use preprint archives. These have been used in physics for a quarter of a century with no ill effects. And what it means is that before they send their manuscript for peer review, they deposit it in a repository so that it is available for critique and inspection by the wider scientific community
1: that immediately cuts some of the delays. Okay, and everyone is clamoring about data and the idea of making research data openly available for people to inspect. Where does The Economist sit on that?
0: Scientists are a competitive lot. And if your career depends on
1: journal publication,
0: then you are going to try and hold on to your data as tightly as possible until you get those precious journal papers out. So instead, if we go through the preprint route, you've already deposited your preprint, you've made the case that you have a discovery, and so that should incentivise more data sharing. We also think that funding agencies, such as the National Institutes of Health and others, could start to mandate this process. So as soon as a paper is submitted, the data is made available. The mechanisms are there.
1: Researchers simply need to start doing it. So that sounds unobjectionable. However, some people object to such things. What is the argument against this reasonable idea? The chief
0: argument against uh, data sharing has been that it gives rivals a look in before a scientist can publish their paper. However, if funding agencies and universities recognize the preprint as a key A moment of discovery, then the journal paper becomes sort of superfluous at the end. It goes through peer review, gets published in the journal, but uh, the moment of discovery is when a preprint has been deposited, and that is indeed the case in many fields of physics and maths. And you want to change the
1: peer review process as well?
0: Well, I don't think I stand any chance of changing the journal peer review process, but uh, there are alternatives. Now, journal peer review there are many indications that uh, there are flaws. And part of the problem is that it is a secretive process. And so there have been cases of cabals of researchers cooperating to give each other positive reviews, for example. This is rare, but it has happened. And there are more uh, minor abuses of the system. An alternative is open peer review. And there are some repositories that are in fact doing this. F1000 research is one. And what that means is once a researcher has submitted their paper, uh, the peer review process happens openly. The peer reviewed reports are deposited online
1: and the uh, reviewers are named. Now, the stakes of getting these things right, from a repository to improving peer review to freeing up some of the data isn't really about science, it's really about society and it's about making important changes. The stakes are quite huge in terms of the advancement of knowledge and an entrepreneurial culture.
0: It is vitally important and in medical research, doubly so. Imagine if an epidemic should break out, then having the latest data to be able to tackle the crisis is absolutely central uh, in order for health agencies to respond appropriately. Now during the Zika crisis, What happened was that in order to encourage academics to post their data and papers as preprints, funding agencies had to talk to publishers and they all had to agree that this was okay. Now, the reason for that is that in many cases, the publication of preprints was frowned upon by some journals and Scientists didn't want to compromise their chances of publishing in elite journals by depositing preprints. I think that this is an outrageous uh, state of affairs. So we we think this should change.
1: Yeah, that's right. It can't be a one-off. It needs to be a process. That's right. Yeah. Great. Listen, Anna No. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Ken. A pleasure as always. In last week's episode, we discussed how a succession of strange radio signals picked up in an observatory in Australia could potentially be sent by space aliens. The idea is that these waves are in fact used like an electromagnetic wind to push along huge spacecraft equipped with sails through the galaxies. Yes, it sounds a little bit strange, but the researchers are from my beloved Harvard, so it might be true. The story inspired some spirited conversations on social media. On Facebook, Peter Stricker wrote, quote, I'm curious how the spaceship that was accelerated by radiation from the originating planet would be decelerated by opposite radiation from the destination planet. That scheme would require a parallel intelligence at the destination. Unquote. And Peter, that would be true. So, of course, clearly the destination could not be Earth. We've also received an email from one of our listeners, a certain Nathan Fry. Nathan wrote, I recently listened to the Little Green Men podcast and noticed Kenneth's that's me use of the term theory a couple of times instead of, quote, hypothesis or, quote, guess. I've noticed this a few times in previous episodes as well. I know it sounds pedantic, but the refrain, it's just a theory, is commonly used by evolution deniers to denigrate the theory of evolution, as we all know. Scientific theories are backed up by mountains of evidence, as opposed to the colloquial use of the word, which basically equates to just a guess. Since you're usually talking about scientific concepts, it seems more appropriate to use hypothesis in this context. Thank you, and keep up the good work, Nathan Fry. So, Nathan is absolutely correct, and I apologize to listeners, I have been using a very informal use of the term theory, when in fact, I should be using often hypothesis. And I will be really careful next time because you know what? Words matter and these things are important. So thank you, Nathan. Don't forget, you can all get in touch with us about all of our content. And we love reading your letters and seeing your social media posts. You can tweet us at Economist Radio or write on our Facebook page or email us at radio at up. Uber has been having a rather bumpy ride recently. The ride-sharing company appears to be in turmoil. Several senior executives have left over the past few weeks, along with the president, Jeff Jones, at the end of last week. He had only been on the job for seven months. Joining us on the line from Silicon Valley to tell us more is Alexandra Suic, our U.S. technology editor. Hello, Alexandra. Hi, Ken. Alexandra, Uber, what is going on?
2: It has been a series of extremely unfortunate events uh, that started in January. So the hashtag delete Uber campaign encouraged users to delete the Uber app and stop using it uh, because of Travis Kalanick's supposed support of Trump in spite of the refugee ban and then from there there have been many difficult things which in isolation a company could handle coming all together I think it's really difficult A sexual harassment allegation, a woman who had worked there suggesting it's systemic and that there are cultural issues an executive departure revelations about a secret software program that was used to foil regulators on top of it all Google has sued Uber alleging that some of its employees who left to start their own startup, which Uber then acquired, had stolen some of Google's uh, LiDAR technology, which is used in self-driving cars. And at this stage in Uber's life, you know, it's a it's a seven-year-old company and it's the most highly valued private technology company in America. Its private market valuation is around 70 billion dollars. So having problems like this, while they might not permanently hamper the business, first of all, is a distraction. and second of all, cast doubt on whether Uber will be able to live up to the high expectations implied in the valuation.
1: Now, losing technology talent is uh, extremely bad, particularly the ones that he has lost in the area of artificial intelligence and self-driving vehicles. And then on top of it, having an intellectual property infringement suit that just looks absolutely devastating. Why are the investors keeping Kalanick around?
2: Travis is the one who built this company so quickly. I think that the board thinks that he's also the person who can help see it through because he had the vision. The board, even if they didn't believe that, does not have the power to fire him. He is bringing a chief operating officer and they're looking for someone sort of like Sheryl Sandberg has been to Mark Zuckerberg, someone who has experience in the industry, has run big companies, and can keep Travis in check and guide Uber. If they're unable to find a COO, that, I think, will force Travis to step down.
1: Looking beyond Uber, what does this tell us about Silicon Valley? It would seem to my eyes here in London that Silicon Valley has to grow up, that companies that become large have special responsibilities, and that they simply can't treat the world like software in which you can just design things as you'd like them to be, You have to deal with the world as it is, including the law.
2: I think there are three points. The first is that corporate governance is really bad in Silicon Valley. I think that in a lot of cases, boards are toothless. The second is that a lot is tolerated in the name of growth, culturally and otherwise. So as long as a company is growing, very little is questioned. As soon as there are stumbles, that's when people come out and start pointing fingers. But until then, I don't think that people ask very tough questions. The third is that a lot of a company's success depends on narrative. So Uber has built up this dream of conquering ride-hailing around the world. To be fair, the, the fundamentals of the business are are very good. This is not a company that loses money on every transaction like some of the ones we saw during the dot-com boom. This could be a very large company. Whether it will live up to all the hype remains to be seen.
1: Alexandra, thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much, Ken.
1: Finally, the Salar de Gorbea, a stretch of land at the southern end of the Atacama Desert in Chile, is one of the most hostile places on earth. It's also home to some of the most extraordinary dunes on the planet, which are themselves a geological phenomenon. They are made of the mineral gypsum, and there is no explanation as to how they have formed. Joining us on the line to dive into the mystery is science correspondent Matt Kaplan. Hello, Matt.
3: Hiya, Ken. How's it going?
1: Tell us about the dunes. What is so strange about them?
3: So... Dunes everywhere else are made of sand, and in some cases you get dunes that are made of unusual types of sand. So like the White Sands National Monument in the U.S. is composed of, of gypsum crystals, but they're very fine. The dunes in the Salar Gorbea kind of blow everything else out of the water because these dunes are constructed from gypsum crystals that in some cases are as large as 27 centimeters in length.
1: And so if they're heavier, they shouldn't have formed?
3: That's the thing, is dunes are formed from wind. And geological textbooks will tell you that things like silt and clay and sand can all be picked up and dispersed by wind. But when you start getting up to things like cobbles and pebbles, things that are are quite substantial in size, you don't see those things being moved around routinely by wind. So the question was, how the hell were these things getting to the dunes? I mean, Salargo Bay is weird. It also has ponds that are acidic and salty. The researcher behind this knew that in those acidic and salty ponds, you got gypsum crystals growing, but they were like five kilometers away from the gypsum dunes. So her task was figuring out how they got from one point to the other.
1: And she thinks she's nailed it.
3: Yeah. She initially thought, well, wait a minute, is it possible that these things are being transported by water? But that's just absolutely impossible. It's such a dry place. And then when she started looking at the structure of the crystals themselves, she noticed that the ones that were in the dunes had nicks and markings on them that were indicative of transport by wind. And while she was doing this work, she noticed dust devils traveling around through the Salar Gorbea.
1: So remind us for our listeners, what are dust devils?
3: They're kind of like miniature tornadoes. They form when heat inversions occur, when hot air near the ground of a desert displaces overlying cooler air, and that creates this cyclical effect that causes a whirlwind. The big difference between dust devils and tornadoes, though, is strength. Dust devils carry things like sand grains. Tornadoes carry things like cows. (laughs) You know, it's it's a major difference in what what these things carry. And so she was seeing dust devils travel across, and even more interesting, she noticed that the dust devils passed over the areas where these acidic and salty ponds were. So that was a vehicle for potential transport of the crystals, but it seemed impossible that these dust devils would be strong enough to carry crystals that were up to 27 centimeters in length. But sure enough, when she examined what these dust devils were doing, they were doing that. They would pluck up the crystals from dried up ponds, carry them five kilometers through the desert, and then dump them in these dunes. Um, and so that's interesting. It makes the dunes unique because nowhere else in the world do we have dunes constructed of such large objects. But then on top of that, it also points to the dust devils of the Solar Gorbea being unique in and of themselves because they have to be way more powerful than any other dust devils on the planet.
1: So this seems to shed new light on what we know about geology.
3: It does. And what's really cool is we see a lot of structures in the geologic record that we often cannot make sense of. It is possible that this insight into the formation of dunes with these large crystals could help us to better understand a lot of rock specimens that we see that were formed millions of years ago and have had no explanation for. Matt,
1: that's really interesting. Thanks a lot. No problem. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Babbage. If you have, please take a moment to rate this at your favorite podcast app or on iTunes. And if you have any thoughts on this week's show, email us at radio@economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools,